Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us as uh, we've come together to worship our God this morning. And uh, we're gonna get, be getting into the text of 1 Corinthians 15, so go ahead and open your Bibles to that. Uh, the title of our message is The Power of the Resurrection. And in today's study, we're gonna be seeing first the historical reality that Jesus Christ not only died and was buried for our sins, but rose again and reigns to this day and for all eternity. But also we're gonna take a look at what are the implications of the resurrection, and what does that mean for us as Christians? But let's go ahead and start by reading uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God." But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious truths that you present to us in your word. That they're not just theory or hope, a vain hope, but their actual truth, historical reality. We have salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And the invitation uh, that you give to this world to turn from sin and turn to you for forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for this great hope of eternal life, this promise that you've given us. Bless our time of fellowship this morning as we go through your word and see how awesome you are. Might your Holy Spirit solidify these truths in our minds, that we would go away from here changed and walking in love for you. We ask all these things, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we go through 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11 and various other texts, the main focus that we're gonna have or learn from all this is this. God's power to raise Christ from the dead is the same power by which he makes us new creations so that we can truly love him. Again, God's power to raise Christ from the dead is the same power by which he makes us new creations so that we can truly love him. Now, looking at our text, uh, if you've been with us through this whole series as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, Paul is reaching the end of his letter uh, to the church at Corinth. And as you might recall, uh, he is addressing some important concerns. Uh, they believed the gospel, but they were engaging in all sorts of things that uh, Christians should not do. They are not pleasing to God. They were living like unbelievers. So he addressed divisions in the church. Uh, there were different factions in the church that were elevating mere men uh, to a level that they shouldn't be elevated to. Only God 
should be elevated. But they were following various uh, teachers in the church, whether it was Paul or Apollos or others. So they shouldn't do that. That's fleshly mindedness. Uh, he addressed sexual immorality in the church. And as you might recall, uh, the city of Corinth was known around the world at that time as being particularly uh, debaucherous and full of sexual immorality. And so these people are coming out of this sinful culture, uh, believing the gospel, but still practicing some of the things that they used to do. And then towards the end of this letter, he answers questions posed by the Corinthians. You know, how do we conduct a church service? What, what about divorce and remarriage? All these different things that are coming up, how do we do what God calls us to do? And, and so Paul is answering the questions uh, that they are posing to him. And then in the verses following this section, he's going to address concerns that some did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, which Nick will address in the next couple of weeks. But as we return to our text here, now he's going to remind them of the gospel, looking at verses one and two. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So looking at that first uh, phrase there, it's the gospel that they received. And think how countercultural count, counter it is for these people to hear the gospel and believe it and uh, start to turn away uh, from the sinful culture within which they lived. They didn't ignore the gospel, they received it. And they believed it such that they were getting together for fellowship. And in fact, were having this letter read to them. So they were, they were going along with the program. And then Paul says, it's the gospel in which they stand. They intentionally remained firm in their faith in God and his salvation. They weren't turning to a false gospel. They weren't rejecting it. They were standing firm, but they needed instruction on how to live because they were being fleshly minded in their thinking and conduct. They were living just like unbelievers. Furthermore, Paul says, it's the gospel by which they are being saved. And this is an important truth for us. Uh, salvation isn't something that happened in the past in our lives, and then God kind of leaves us on our own, and then one day he's gonna return. No, salvation is an ongoing act of grace from the time we're saved all the way for all eternity. So we are kept by God's act of grace, and it's his grace that is actively at work in us. It never leaves us because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, as we'll see. But what is this gospel? We see various passages throughout the New Testament that give a, a beautiful depiction of what salvation is and what the good news is. And it's essentially this, that God in his love for us sinners died the death that we deserve because we can't keep God's law. And he rose again so that we can have newness of life. And of all the passages we can read, there's, like I said, many, uh, but we're gonna take a look at Titus 3, one through eight to give us an idea of what happens at salvation. Paul in his letter to Titus says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
So here in this passage, we see a clear depiction of the gospel. God saved us by his mercy, not by our works. We cannot earn salvation. It's impossible. Uh, Trying to do so will only lead to your eternal condemnation and separation from God. Rather, trust in Christ uh, because he's the one that paid the penalty for our sins. And only he is worthy to be called Savior. More than that, we learn a little bit about what happens uh, at salvation. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, makes us spiritually alive. Before we're saved, we're spiritually dead. We cannot turn to God. We cannot please God. We have no desire to obey his word. Uh, We are enemies of God. But at salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new creations so that now we can see who God is and we can see that Jesus Christ is our Savior. More than that, now that we're saved, we're saved to do good works. This is our calling. And we'll talk about what uh, these good works look like as we go throughout this message. But in this word of encouragement, back to our, our section here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also gives them a warning. He says, salvation in Christ is yours if you hold fast to the truth. And he goes on to say, unless you believed in vain. And Paul addresses what we call fleshly mindedness uh, or disobedient living uh, throughout the New Testament in his letters that he writes to the various churches that he's ministering to. Uh, Because of a concern, people uh, receive the gospel, but they're not living the way they ought to. And don't we have this struggle in ourselves? If we're honest, yes. Every day, every moment, we have a choice to make. Either we're gonna walk by the flesh or walk by the spirit and do what pleases God. And so Paul is is instructing them, uh, just as he has in other letters that he's written. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul uh, writes a letter to Timothy to encourage him that, hey, pay attention. Many are believing the gospel and are saved, but there are some that are rejecting the gospel and teaching legalism. They're teaching salvation by works. And so Paul cautions him, uh, deal with these people, have nothing to do with them because they're leading people astray. They taught legalism instead of grace through faith in Christ. But in this context, in the city of Corinth, Paul's concerned that they will love the world instead of Christ. In other words, they weren't devoting themselves to good works or works that please God. And this is evidence in their thoughts and consequently their actions. It was fueled by their love for the things of this world. And as we talked about the culture that they came from, that's all they did. They lived for their feelings. Uh, It's a lifestyle of worshiping our feelings and whatever gives us that desired uh, feeling. In a word, it's hedonism. Uh, It's pursuit of the flesh, pursuit of whatever makes me happy. If it feels good, do it. And the motivation in this way of thinking is uh, you're driven by your feelings. So you wanna feel good, or if you feel like doing something, that's what you're gonna do. You're not driven by any other motive. And so it's just fleshly-minded or earthly-mindedness as we see in the text that we'll read uh, that it describes. And Paul warns of this to the Philippians as well. When he's ministering to them, he wrote a letter Uh, saying encouraging things that they received the gospel and they were coming along well. They were following Christ and doing what he called them to do. But yet there were some that heard the gospel and were turning away to this way of fleshly mindedness. And I'll read uh, in chapter three, verses 17 to 21 for you. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, separation from God. That, uh, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so here we see uh, their appetite was their belly and that's just another way of saying they lived according to their feelings. But brothers and sisters, if we live according to our feelings, what are we gonna do? All sorts of wicked things and it's gonna lead to destruction. Don't be deceived, sin will always destroy and have consequences. That's, that's what fleshly mindedness does. That's part of the curse of sin. And that's why God warns us not to pursue sin because it will only hurt us. So God's not saying no to things uh, to cut off uh, your fun and to, to give you, make life hard for you. No, he delights in you and he wants you to enjoy him and to, to be blessed. So as Christians, we're not to be fleshly minded, but rather our thoughts and our actions are to be fueled by our love for God. But how is it that we can even love God? And what, what's the mechanics behind that? What does this look like for us as Christians uh, in this commandment to love God? Well, I get a few passages to read here. First one is in 1 John chapter 4. I'll read it to you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. We love because he first loved us. And so rather than being driven by our feelings, we're called to love. And I think the distinction here is very important. We can't truly love God until we're born again, until we're new creations, until the Holy Spirit regenerates us. Now, certainly unbelievers love one another, but it's all for fleshly-minded or earthly-minded reasons. They don't ever do it out of love for God and the commandment to obey him and do what pleases him. And so there's a great distinction there. Before we're saved, we can't love God, but now that we're saved, we can. 2 Corinthians 5.17 explains this further. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We were spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. We're born again. We're new creations. Romans 8, 1 through 9 gives an even uh, better explanation of making that distinction of what we're like before we're saved compared to what we are now uh, with life in the Spirit. I'll read verses eight, uh, 1 through 9 to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For, this, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we see the distinction there. Before we're saved, we cannot please God. We cannot truly submit to God's law. Sure, uh, we might've been moral, upright citizens, uh, but it was all for fleshly-minded reasons. It was all for selfish gain, fear of consequences, uh, trying to promote how great we think we are, uh, all things that are sinful. Uh, we could never do anything out of love for God. But now that we're new creations, now that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and the grace of God is actively, actively at work within us, now 
we can choose uh, to obey God. Another passage gives more clarity to this, Romans 6, 4. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power at work in us so that we might walk in newness of life. And what does this mean more specifically to walk in newness of life? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. So before, uh, when, we were, when we were unsaved, all we could do uh, would be done in selfish, selfishness, uh, for selfish pleasures, for selfish gain. But now that we're new creations, now we have a new calling. Let everything we do be done in love, love for God and love one another. But I caution you, now that we're saved, uh, we can choose to please God or not. And so we have the power of the Spirit within us to do what pleases God, uh, but we can also quench the Spirit. We can walk by the Spirit or quench the Spirit. Just like the Corinthians were walking in the flesh, we can too. And so we have to make a choice. But rather, we are called to walk by the Spirit, doing what pleases God rather than ourselves. And Paul encourages us that if we do what the Spirit desires, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And we all know the struggle. We're still in the flesh and so we have these desires every day. But at the same time, we have the power of God at work in us, his grace in us, because his spirit dwells within us. We have the power, the ability to say no to those things and choose to obey God. And it's very evident what the desires of the flesh are. We don't need to go into details, uh, but it's, it's clear that these are things contrary to what pleases God. This is the thing, these are the things that the Corinthians were engaged in, uh, division, sexual immorality, and all sorts of uh, wicked things uh, that was uh, evidenced in the culture around them. So that's easy, but what does the Spirit desire? What does the Spirit desire for us to do? He dwells within us, He wants us to do certain things. And first and foremost, it's that we love God. The first and greatest commandment is that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And with that is obeying God. Obey His actual moral commands that are in the scriptures. As Jesus said to the disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And that includes uh, turning away from sin and joyfully doing what God calls us to do. Uh, it includes praying. God is a good and merciful God, and he calls us to talk with him, to share our concerns with him, to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. He calls us to pray for others for their specific needs and to spend time with one another in fellowship and minister to one another. Uh, he calls us to praise him. It's not enough that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we have eternal life. He does so many other, many amazing things that are a rich blessing to us. I know we've all experienced as believers that God has orchestrated circumstances uh, that uh, were meant to be a blessing to us, particular to who we are and to who our, who, what our needs are. And so God is ever loving us and going out of his way uh, to be a blessing to us. And so we should praise him for these things. God delights when we do what pleases him, he delights in it. And so, uh, as we mentioned, while works don't save us, now that we're saved, good works are an act of worship to God. 
Don't think of worship as just something we do on a Sunday morning. That's corporate worship when we all come together to worship God. Uh, but worship is to be something we do every day of our lives, every moment, every thought that we think, uh, everything that we say uh, should be done as an act of worship to God. Well, we won't do it perfectly because we're still in the flesh, so there is that battle that goes on, uh, but by God's grace actively at work within us, we have the ability to turn away from sin and to do what pleases God. And in fact, it's in pleasing God that we find true pleasure, pure pleasure, a, a sincere joy, even when we're sacrifice, uh, sacrificing uh, those temptations that we would rather commit, our feelings are driving us towards that, but rather our commitment and love to God causes us to resist those things and to obey him. And we can experience the joy that comes in obedience, even though we're not doing what our flesh would rather be doing. So we find true pleasure, pure pleasure in obeying God, not that perverted kind that leaves us with guilt and shame and sometimes lasting consequences. This is walking in the flesh. And Paul, as I mentioned, uh, dealt with fleshly mindedness amongst believers in his other letters. And in particularly, he addressed it with the Galatians as well. In Galatians 4, 8 through 11, I'll read the text to you. It says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Their fleshly mindedness wasn't the hedonism that the Corinthians were engaged in, it was legalism. They were focused on justifying themselves by works, uh, works that were not commanded by God. They were made up rules that they came up with and it satisfied uh, their, their consciences. It, it was a self-righteous, fleshly-minded satisfaction, not the satisfaction that we find in trusting that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And I would point out to you that hedonism and legalism are two sides of the same fleshly-minded coin. They both seek to please and worship the self, one by indulging in sinful bodily pleasure, that's hedonism, and the other by indulging in the sinful pleasure of self-righteousness or legalism. You delight in how good you think you are, especially compared to other people. That's how it works. That's fleshly mindedness. God is not pleased with that kind of thinking. But because of Christ, we can turn away from this destructive way of living. As I mentioned, sin always destroys. It always has consequences, negative consequences. Uh, but God in his grace gives us hope. His ways are perfect and no one is ever hurt by obeying God. So now Paul, after he talks about this, he goes on to share of the great salvation that God has bestowed on him. And I'll read to you verses three and four. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I'll stop there. Paul is presenting the truth of the gospel. But he's not just making a statement. He's making a statement with corroborating evidence. And we'll see this, as he says, according to the scriptures. Um, before we get into the evidence, so he says it's of first importance, the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins is a foundation on which our faith stands. So Jesus didn't just die and was buried for our sins, but he also rose again. And Paul's asserting that this, this has to be a historical fact because if it's not, our faith is in vain and we might as well not even continue uh, meeting together. But in fact, it is true. God's plan of salvation was planned before the foundation of the world and his will will prosper 
Nothing will thwart what God plans to do, including the great salvation that he's bestowed upon us. But let's look at the evidence. Paul says here, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There are multiple passages throughout the Old Testament that testify that Jesus Christ would come and die for our sins. I'll read a few here for you. Uh, the first one is in Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. This is right after Adam and Eve chose to follow Satan instead of God. And so the curse of sin uh, was upon them, and God was declaring the judgments that he would bring upon them because they rebelled against him. And in this text, he's talking to Satan. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That last phrase, and you shall bruise his heel, refers to Satan in that he wanted to get rid of Jesus. He wanted to disrupt his ministry. He didn't want him to be exalted as God. And ultimately, he had sort of a victory, if you will, uh, when Jesus was crucified on the cross. But this was all according to God's plan. And because Jesus rose again, it was only a bruise to his heel, not a significant injury. And the flip side of that, though, is that it says, he shall bruise your head. Jesus gave Satan a death blow. When he died and rose again, he defeated Satan and the power of sin and death. And so he dealt Satan a death blow. Uh, and so we can rejoice in this wonderful truth that God's plan of redemption would never be thwarted. And so we look at another text here, though, uh, Daniel 9, 26. The angel Gabriel spoke to Daniel and said, after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. That anointed one is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he was cut off. And as we know, he was cut off because of our sins. And so even then it was prophesied that this Messiah would come. In Zechariah 13, 7, another text, uh, the prophet Zechariah is prophesying about the coming Messiah. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So again, another prophecy that Jesus Christ would be struck, that he'd be cut down uh, for our sins. And we find uh, a fulfillment of this in Matthew 26, when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before he was gonna be crucified. And he said, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, and he's quoting now Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he's foretelling that he's about to die on the cross and he's about to die for their sins. But then he goes on in the next verse and says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus is foretelling that he's gonna die for them, but then also that he's going to be raised up. And more than that, after he's raised up, he's going to appear before them and see them in person as proof of the resurrection. And so we can rejoice at these truths. And so we go on to the next session where it says, Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. As Jesus just foretold them, that's exactly what he was going to do. But now we're going to jump back over 700 years to the prophet Isaiah and see what he had to say about this. And I want to encourage you in my own personal life, at times we have doubts about the truth of the gospel. 
And I can speak for myself, a lot of times when I've had doubts, it's just because of my ignorance. I didn't know the word of God that well. But the more you study the word of God, the more you start to realize this is a no-brainer. Of course, this is true. And Isaiah 53 is one of those chapters that will, will strengthen your faith because there are such specific prophe prophecies about what Jesus does on the cross and rising again uh, that there's no mistaking it. It's, it's uh, just an essential uh, way of building our faith. But I'll read uh, just verses 10 through 12 to you to speak to this point of the prophecy of the resurrection. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, our guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord uh, shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So we see there <clears throat> in this text that Isaiah is prophesying that Jesus is gonna die for our sins. He's not just gonna die for any reason. He's gonna die because of our guilt, because of our transgressions. <clears throat> and more than that, uh, referring back to verse 10, uh, God will prolong his days, meaning he will raise him from the grave. And so we see these prophecies foretelling uh, that Jesus Christ indeed will die for us, for our sins, but also will rise again. And so we can rejoice at these truths. So we have the foretelling of Christ's death and resurrection historically, but also proofs after the fact that substantiate his resurrection. Let's look at verses five through seven. And that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And so as I mentioned, Paul is showing them evidence that the scriptures foretold of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, uh, and then also spoke to um, his resurrection, but then also he's got literal proofs right in front of them, things that they can test and testify to uh, during their lives. And so Paul further encourages them that many had seen Jesus alive after his death. The apostles did, uh, and then over 500 men, enough that it couldn't have been by deception. And you think of eyewitness testimony. It's a very important uh, factor in our court cases today. And the basic rule of thumb is uh, the more consistent the testimonies, uh, the more credible it is. And likewise, the more testimonies you have, even better. And in some court cases, one or two eyewitness testimonies can throw a case in either direction. But here we have over 500 men that saw Jesus Christ in the flesh after he rose again. And these are people that the Corinthians knew. These are people that they could talk to and hear their testimony. And so Paul is, is laying it out for them. This is true. And test it for yourselves. Talk to these people and, and hear their testimony. And this is what makes the resurrection uh, so specific, or, or it differentiates Christianity from all other religions. It's a historical fact. Because you gotta know, uh, there are so many enemies of Christ that if there was evidence that he did not rise again, if they found his body, you know they, they would plaster that all throughout human history such that there would be no such thing as Christianity because everybody knew it would be a fraud. But in fact, it's historical fact. They can't find his body because he rose again. And this is a beautiful truth uh, that we can uh, rest our hope in. 
Other religions, by contrast, are designed by men and are based on philosophy and visions and stories that they talk about, but you can't substantiate them. Uh, they're not corroborated. There's no evidence to support their theories. And so they try to keep their, their stories secret and only the inner circle can know more about them. Uh, and so it, it's, it's basically lies. They're made by men to lead people astray and people that follow the religions of this world will spend an eternity separated from God. But we have hope because we know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. God has regenerated us so that we have new hearts to be able to see this. And my hope for you this morning, if you're listening to this and you're, you don't know Christ as your savior, my hope is that the spirit would work in you, that you too would come to know Jesus Christ as we do and have your sins forgiven and to raise you to newness of life. So now that Paul has talked about uh, all these proofs, not only the prophecies from the Old Testament uh, and what Jesus foretold, uh, but also uh, the eyewitness testimonies that Jesus rose from the grave. Now he's gonna share of his own personal eyewitness testimony. And I'll start in verse 11, or verse eight rather. And it says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And so Paul, as you might know, his, his name used to be Saul. And at the time, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in the Jewish faith. And he was well known uh, for his zealousness. He stuck to the law to a T, even though looking back now, he was an unbeliever, so it was only outwardly, uh, but still he was highly regarded amongst those of his religious sect. And as an Israelite leader, uh, while he kept the law, he was also greatly opposed to Christianity because it opposed Judaism or the Jewish faith. So Paul zealously persecuted Christians. And one day he was on his way to Damascus to find any Christians and to take them into custody to Jerusalem so that they might be charged. And Paul, as you know, even oversaw the murder of some Christians. That's how zealous he was against the followers of the way, as they called it then. But God had other plans. God met him on the way, made, a, made him a recipient of God's grace, so that rather than someone who opposed God, he pursued God. He was a servant of God, and he proclaimed the gospel uh, to the world at that time. And that, again, is just a miracle of God's grace. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates us. We become new creations. And this is what happened to Paul. And he's not just making this up. The other apostles affirmed him. So he's legitimate uh, before God and before those that served alongside him when Jesus was on the earth. So by the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he was confident in the faith that he stood. But yet he couldn't help but remember the evil that he committed as an unbeliever, especially as he persecuted the church. And we all have histories. We all have struggles even today. Uh, but by the grace of God, we can grow in obedience to God. And the memory of our past sins should spur us all the more to draw near to God and to love him. I do wanna point out though that Paul's memory of his sins wasn't self-pity, nor did it lead to morbid introspection or analysis paralysis. Uh, we can reflect on our sin in a prideful sense. Like, oh, I'm such a bad person. Oh, I can't believe I would do those things. Well, we shouldn't be shocked. We should be shocked we haven't committed even more sins. Uh, that's just how wicked we are. 
uh, but rather uh, than feeling sorry for ourselves and in a sense hiding from God. Perhaps you've done that when you know you're guilty of some sin and uh, you're ashamed and you think that God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. That's not true. That's fleshly-minded thinking. To be spiritual-minded is to run to God, is to draw near to him as he promises he'll draw near to us. It's to boldly approach the throne of grace for help in time of trouble. God invites us, do not delay, do not resist his calling uh, to come to him. If we sin, go before God and confess that sin. And he's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So don't be prideful and don't try to hide from God. Run to him because he's good. Likewise, Paul recognized the grace of God toward him and it fueled his love for God all the more. He realized the depth of God's grace towards him because he knew the depth of his sin. And now uh, he sought to work as hard as he did when he was a persecutor of the church, except now he was serving in love by the power of the Holy Spirit, that active grace that's active within all of us. And he did it out of love for God and out of love for people. So looking at Paul, because of God's grace, Paul is no longer that sinner he used to be. He's a new creation. He has a new heart given to him when the Holy Spirit regenerated him, one that has received God's love, and so now he could truly love God and others. He can abide in Christ and thus bear much fruit. But I wanna encourage you, don't think that Paul had some extra measure of grace that we don't have. The same spirit that dwelled within him is the same spirit that dwells within us. And therefore, because of God's grace, we are no longer the sinners we used to be. We are a new creation. We have a new heart. Before uh, we worship self and pleasure, we spent most of our time thinking about and pursuing idols. Now, by God's grace, we can choose to put that same effort that we once put to worshiping idols, uh, fleshly-minded, earthly-minded thinking, we can now put that same effort toward worshiping God. Not by our own strength, but by the grace that is actively at work in, within us because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But how? How does this look on a practical moment-by-moment -moment, uh, uh, way of living? Well, I want you to think of a relationship that you have, whether it's a best friend, a family member, a spouse, your kids, whoever, somebody that you truly love. And think about that relationship you have with them. You spend time thinking about them. You enjoy them. You talk with them. You share what's on your heart and you listen to them as they share what's on their heart. You get to know them and that relationship grows all the stronger. You do kind gestures for them to make them happy because in knowing them, you know what pleases them. You know what makes them happy. And because you love them, you're encouraged all the more to do those kinds of things for them. You intentionally engage them in this relationship. You don't neglect it. You pursue them. And you do it all because you love them. This is the way we're supposed to know God. God is knowable and he invites us to know him. He invites us to have intimate fellowship with him just as we would uh, with a close friend, such that we should think about God. And if you're not sure what to think about God, go to his word. That's how he communicates to us who he is and what he delights in. And so if you wanna know God, if you wanna think about him, go to his word and meditate on it and see who this awesome God is that loves you and me. Talk with him. He invites us to pray to him. And don't just think of it as something you do five minutes in the morning before you head out for the day and then right before bed. No, it's an ongoing fellowship that we're to have with God. He wants us to know him intimately throughout the day. And as I mentioned, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. 
He wants to know what's on your heart. He wants to know what your struggles are. He wants to see your love for one another and how you pray for others. God delights in these things. He also wants us uh, to do kind gestures for him to make him happy. Obey his commands. If you love him, obey his commands. God delights in it when we do what pleases him instead of the flesh. He knows the struggle that we have. And all the more, it's, a, it's an active uh, or it's a, a prominent way of loving God when we choose to obey him rather than giving into the flesh. And this relationship with God is intentional. We have to foster it. Don't wait for a feeling. If we go by our feelings, we'll live like hedonists and we'll pursue the desires of the flesh. But rather, in love for God, feelings come later, but it's a commitment. It's a choice to do what pleases God. So the difference between walking by the Spirit and walking in the flesh is motive. Why do you do what you do? Why do you think what you think? Why do you say what you say? We need to evaluate ourselves throughout the day and what we're doing. Are we doing things to please the flesh? Are we doing things to please, uh, please God? Are we walking by the flesh and quenching the spirit? Or are we walking by the spirit and thus doing what pleases God? I wanna encourage you that the more you know God, the more you'll love him. Consequently, the more you know God, the more you study his word, the more you're gonna see just how sinful you are. And that will make you appreciate God's grace for you all the more and thus fuel that love for him. In contrast, the Corinthians spent more time engaging the flesh instead of God and it showed. They were indulging in all the wickedness that they used to do before they were saved. And that's why Paul is, is writing them and, and encouraging them to turn away from those things and to walk by the Spirit instead of the flesh. So again, the Christian life is not a passive endeavor. It's an active, intentional life of love to God. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and uh, take communion together. So stand and take the elements perfect segue into celebrating what Christ has done for us, we have all experienced as believers the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We are new creations. We have the ability to obey God, and that's because his grace is actively at work in us. And it's for us to choose whether we'll obey the flesh or whether we'll obey God and do what pleases him. And so my hope and prayer for all of us is that God, uh, God's Spirit will continue to minister to our hearts that as we go away from here this morning, we'll go away changed, uh, rejoicing in God and delighting in obeying him rather than those destructive uh, desires of the flesh. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.